0: So, maybe if we sit for a little while beforehand in whatever position is comfortable, not making too much out of the posture, just finding a way to sit that's uh, easy enough not to fall asleep, to have a sense of mental or Psychic uprightness, as well as being able to relax as much as possible physically. Eyes open or eyes closed, whatever supports being able to stay present, just knowing what's happening now. It doesn't matter how much we know of what's happening now. It doesn't matter what's happening now. Just paying attention to being present, conscious of, present for, what's happening now. So the body, however it feels right now, doesn't. no need to measure or compare. Just allowing ourselves to be just as we find ourselves at this moment, and bringing attention, our only task now, to bring attention to how it is. And every time we find ourselves drifting into thoughts or any kind of distraction where we forget what we're doing, right there again, once we remember that, then we're back paying attention. No need to judge ourselves, no need to beat ourselves up or assess whether this is a good meditation time for us or not, none of that is necessary. Just again, an opportunity to be with this capacity we have for awake, aware consciousness, knowing what's happening now, and using the meditation object as a simple way to stay in touch, to know that we're not forgetting so whether it's the bodily sensations, the whole body or whether we've been using the in and out breathing in a particular spot like the nostrils or the abdomen, diaphragm or the whole breath, path of the breath from the nose through the chest to the belly back through the chest and out the nose or any of the many places we can notice the breathing, different parts of the body, the rhythm of the breath, the energy of the breath, or indeed any other meditation object which we've been using. Just using our meditation object as a way to remember and not forget, not get lost in our thoughts, fears, feelings, fantasies, expectations, whatever it is, just to pay attention, simply that. And then the breath or the object of meditation becomes like our friend, our helper, like the, the dog dogs that are trained to help people without eyesight keep us on the right track. Stay in touch with the lead. No need to dive in and absorb into the breath, into our object, but to just be here. Now, as they say. This quality of softening and widening that Ajahn has been so helpfully describing. So widening around whatever it is that we encounter in this moment, however we feel ourselves to be, our mood, our mental state how much we're thinking, how little we're thinking, what we're thinking. The emotional undertone of this particular moment, the sort of atmosphere, the inner weather, you could say. However it is, just knowing it and widening around it noticing the stillness which, in which it exists. And allowing as much as possible ourselves just to relax into being how it is right now, being who we are right now, however we want to put it. No need to change. Just bring ourselves to start paying attention. And the effort then is just on keeping this paying of attention continuous as possible. So, Trying to stay with it. And keeping a light touch, not trying to hold on to it tightly. But always relaxing, releasing, widening, allowing things to be, and at the same time, just being very consistently present, knowing how it is now, and using our object of meditation, say it's the breath, breathing in, breathing out those sensations, as a way to know that we're not forgetting, so just keeping them in mind, keeping them in our field of attention and not necessarily excluding anything else, not blocking everything else out. So, There's body sitting, breathing, sounds, a slight humming. There may be some aftertaste, fragrance, or odor. And there's this ability we have to just tune in to the silent witness, the witnessing of it. What is this quality that knows? Staying in touch with that and using the breath to help us stay in touch with that sense of presence. If we feel tired, how do we know that? Where do we feel the tiredness? How does it manifest? Is it a feeling in the body? A sense we have in the the psyche? Feeling of drifting away, how does that actually feel, finding a way to get interested in just paying attention to what's happening, whatever it is, even if it's dullness, tiredness, irritation, unpleasant moods or thoughts or feelings, sensations. As much as possible, keeping it. Now not oh I'm falling asleep, but this moment now How does sleepiness feel? In this moment And this moment oh, restlessness can't stay still, can't stop thinking, can't stop wanting, can't stop switching. How does that feel, this moment? Where is it in the body? And can we notice that that which knows restlessness is not restless? And move our identification from the restless seeking mind too that which knows the restless seeking mind body sitting body breathing. Mm -hmm. The only effort is to pay attention, to not drift off And once we realize we've drifted off, just there we are again. And once again, moment by moment, no need to use a a lot of willpower or force, rather the opposite. Acceptance, relaxing, releasing, allowing. just continuing to pay attention, noticing what happens in the mind especially, as well as the body, what kind of habits, habits we all have, that we've all developed through our lives, what kind of habits start to move in once we stop listening or trying something a little different. No judgment is necessary. And so, if, as for many of us, the habit is some sort of self-judgment, some sort of assessment, or feeling that we're not doing it right or we want to do it better, again, okay, then that's what's going on now. No need to believe that. Just noticing that for what it is. It's a thought. It's a feeling right now in this moment. It's a habit of the mind. It's not me. Widening, softening, allowing, being kind enough to ourselves to really allow allow ourselves to see ourselves as we are. Not only as we want to be. I shouldn't judge. The the Buddha says not to judge, so I, I, won't, I won't acknowledge that, I won't look at that. Of course, none of us think it out loud like that. That's often what can happen. So just allowing the whatever is there to be there, and then maybe just noticing that our own wish to be kind to ourselves, our own wish not to judge, is itself an expression of, of love, of loving kindness, of metta, We may not feel like we have metta or loving-kindness for ourselves or for others, for that matter. But even just wishing that we did, is it actually coming from a place of metta? We care. That's what metta is. We don't necessarily have to feel the feelings we associate with feeling kind, feeling loving, feeling caring. We may feel horrible, rotten, Angry, resentful, bitter. And sometimes, then, metta practice really is just also remembering that aspect which is there, which doesn't want to feel bitter, that doesn't want to feel the way we feel, doesn't want to judge. Maybe we can't, we feel we can't stop ourselves from judging. That's all right, something in us. wishes weren't that way, and that wish comes from a place of care. And if we follow the wish, that it w- I wish it wasn't this way, I want to be different, if I follow that, then immediately, right now, I can see how I create more suffering, and I perpetuate the pattern. So humbling, just have to allow myself to be this way I don't want to be. And then this saving practice of bringing awareness to however it is and noticing that I can be aware of this in this moment, just as I can be aware of anything else in the moment. And that awareness is wider, is always surrounding and penetrating through whatever it is we think we are, we feel we are, And so this noticing not only of the awareness, but also our our own caring, our own wish to be caring for ourselves, caring for others, can help to... get in touch with this kind of space it allows for a, a deepening we want to be caring for ourselves want to be caring for those around us sitting here in this room on this retreat for however many days we'll all feel many different things about ourselves and about those we see and hear and smell or whatever it is difficulties of being in a strange situation compared to what we're used to with people we don't know. So whatever we feel, again, no problem. And remembering that wish to may you be well. You know, even if I'm totally irritated at you and I wish that you have just the kind of sleepless night you made me have last night, or whatever it is, okay, that's there, yeah. And underneath it, you know, I really wish I didn't feel this way, and I wish we are both well. That's there too. Learning to turn the mind to those aspects. of Dhamma practice. Qualities of Dhamma loving-kindness and compassion, things that we may feel out of touch with, and yet something in us is compassionate, whether we realize it or not, whether we remember it or not. So this practice can be simply remembering that, finding a way not to block out whatever it is we feel that seems to be covering it up, allowing things to be as they are, and also noticing that intention, that wish, is there too. May we all be well. We can expand that out to everyone in our consciousness from memory, our relationships, whether they're the people here now or in other places, close family, friends, whomever. However we feel, okay, and I really do wish you well. yeah so talking about awareness and uh, you know focusing on this practice then I find it often comes back to this question of uh, how to really uh, fully embody and fully uh, enter into the kind of uh, space or uh, you know, inner space, space of the heart which allows true, true deepening, and it's not easy, is it? It's what this all this business is about: learning ways to try to to help us find ways to do this, and is essentially something that each of us has to discover for ourselves. Which is the one of the paradoxes of religious, sort of institutionalized religious teachings, isn't it? You get these particular formula and ways of of teaching, um, which are meant to guide very unique individuals in in you know ways that will actually will be able to find ourselves use for ourselves and um, and it, and as such they're very skilled skillful teachings, especially in the Buddhist you know uh, effort in in religion in the sense that they they really do speak to what we have in common, and thereby they uh, seem to work more or less well for many, many different people in different cultures at different times. So we're in doing this part of a continuum, aren't we, of practitioners going right back to the time of the Buddha 2,500 years ago through all kinds of different cultures. And here we are. And so we have some, you know, because this is a monastic retreat, we have some more of those, you know, uh, remnants of the ancient cultures that come through, like some of the chants and the gestures like bowing that we do and the rituals. And in fact, you do it even better than uh, most any monastery I've ever been to. I'm just totally impressed with everybody standing like this all the time. Wherever we go, it's really something. And... uh, You don't get that in England at our monasteries. (laughs) And it's probably a good thing, because I think more than ten days of of doing this would be probably maybe a little bit unhealthy for everybody. But they do provide ways for us all to be involved. They give you something, you know, give all of us some way to be part of of a particular ritual. And many of us grow up, at least I did, not really appreciating how ritual can be Beneficial part of our uh, lives. It just seems like that's superstitious and uh, you know, deluded stuff, ritual. And I know how Ajahn Sumedha said that when he first was coming to teach in centers like this, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, maybe, um, there was a lot about. Um, okay. Look, let's strip away all the hocus pocus, religious stuff, and really get to the the core of the teaching, the meditation, and the wisdom teachings. And uh, he, um, I think, when they started Spirit Rock in California, they kind of showed him a video. He was there, sort of. It was before they had the land, or maybe they had the land before they had any buildings, and so they'd made some kind of pro- promotional video to get people interested. And uh, the way I remember the, the story, he said that uh, you know, it kind of started out, the video, the very first image was of these uh, uh, so-called traditional Buddhists in, in, in Asia you know, offering flowers, candles and incense and things on a shrine like this. And then a voice or something came in and said, you know, at this center, there'll be none of that su- su- superstitious stuff. <laughs> now, that's probably an exaggeration. I'm sure it was more tactful than that. But basically, that was the message. And then it showed, you know, Westerners in blue jeans, sitting cross-legged like this, in a in like a, a, a beautiful, uh, no doubt, but bare room. And uh, and then he said, going back twenty or thirty years later, people, you know, Buddhism is now taking root slowly in this culture, and people are finding actually these things. Some of these things have some value, and so some of the very same people. Um, who were involved in that effort were sort of busy really wanting kind of house blessings and to be sprinkled with water and can we do more chanting after the meal and these sort of things that were part of the, the religious ritual of it which had seemed so unnecessary. And of course essentially they're not necessary. They're aids and supports like all of these practices. They're just tools and, you know, I mean tools, I'm not sure that's the best word because there's a lot of beauty and heart in them. There's, uh, there's supports that are available to us if we choose to engage with them. So for those of us in the monastic life, obviously we've chosen to use a lot of these uh, ways of uh, supporting our practice. And uh, those of you practicing, you know, in your lay lives, using this ancient teaching, the Buddhist teaching, and trying to navigate within your own life style, you know, how, you know, what to take, what's going to be supportive. Well, we have we have these different opportunities, and um, I guess I started out really by saying that uh, you know, giving a guided meditation, and because we don't know what we're going to say before we get up here and start saying it. I'm just having a conversation earlier with Ajahn Suchito and the executive director Bob, who was asking us who's giving the talk, and do you know what you're going to say? And no, um, and just uh, it's a kind of different way of giving talks. Which has its advantages and its disadvantages. But uh, it's, I, uh, you find sometimes that uh, when you, in a tradition like this, where a talk really is not the imparting of knowledge which you're meant to kind of learn and write down or keep somewhere, it's more the sharing of a space, a kind of a heart space, hopefully a mutual tuning in and then something comes out of that which is useful. And so the hope is that it's useful. And so I find often I'll start out and maybe my brain will start thinking, ah, right, okay, maybe I'll talk about da-da-da. But then it just goes in a different direction. And when I uh, find myself giving the uh, meditation on awareness, just presence of mind, the mindfulness that we're practicing here, it's often the case that I realize need to talk about metta, about loving kindness uh, for oneself, really. I mean, for, for, for all of us, but for oneself. Because there's just so much of a habit that so many of us have of judgment, judging ourselves. I'm not doing it right, I've got to be better. And it's uh, perhaps necessary to really uh, focus on, 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 on that. In a way where we're not caught in the same sort of patterns, we, we you know we all of us um, nobly I, I would expect nobly try to free ourselves of these harmful patterns, and so we have our our own strategies we've worked out, and they don't necessarily always work, you know they they, they and and we know that, and something else is frustrated with that, you know I here I am and I keep trying and I keep getting into the same thing again and. And so how do we find a way to, to, to expand around that and, and allow some new, uh, a way for it to shift, a way for it to transform, which we didn't see before. We didn't have that possibility before. And that's something each of us, yes, we need to learn ourselves. And it can be really essential to uh, have a relationship with others who are practicing in this way. Um, it may not, in, in terms of having a perspective on judgment and on the power of self-acceptance, I would say, from my observation, it may not even be necessary to have a relationship with someone who's being a Buddhist, who's doing the Buddhist meditation and and would call themselves Buddhist and uses the Buddhist language, but it is necessary to be in relationship with others, at least somebody, who can model a way of being with themselves, which is truly accepting in some deep way. And So when the Buddha said to Ananda in that famous sutta that the holy life is not just half, uh, the relationships with others with Galiana Mita, spiritual friends, spiritual mentors, is not just half of the, the holy life. It's it's the whole thing. I can you know I can get a sense, myself, for what that might mean. In the sense that, you know, we sometimes we just can't we, we can't do it ourselves. Uh, you know, me in my little hut or my little cell, my little room. We, we need to, open ourselves to, um, other 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 beings. Other human beings, yes, who are also practicing. And that somehow, maybe it's not even through talking. Maybe they're not going to teach us anything with quotes around that. But the transformation that we can uh, experience is somehow quickened or touched by those who are also doing the same work. And so I feel like we're all in this together, whether we're in a monastery or not you know, whatever our particular uh, situation. And no doubt it really helps to kind of come together like this and be uh, in actual touch with each other, seeing and hearing and and being in close proximity. But perhaps, and now I'm speculating, but perhaps it also is uh, something which affects uh, us. We might not even be in the same space, but we are somehow in relationship with other practitioners. And those people, maybe you've had this experience before, you have a good friend who's a practitioner, and somehow when you get together after not having contacted each other for a long time, you find you've somehow been going through some of the same things, or working on the same things, or different things arising. And I don't want to make too much out of that and talk about, you know, think about it in a way of like anything psychic, but there is just, I wouldn't be surprised if, if over time science, and our own rationalistic way of measuring these things, starts to understand how we as beings can are in relationship, whether we want to be or not, and how we affect each other. So being conscious about relationship, being conscious about our relationship to ourselves and our relationship to the people that we are uh, living with, is an essential part of the practice, uh, in my experience, my understanding. Because uh, it can be easy to forget that, especially in Theravada Buddhism, especially in... Uh, you know, in the monastic life, we have these very noble and wonderful ideals of going off to the forest and getting, you know, finding your the root of the tree you're going to sit under, and then doing your anapanasati and going through the five is and the seven thats and the eight the other things, and then finally getting to the end. And you can forget, or just not even realize that. Um, being in relationship, you know, as the Buddha said to Ananda, you know, having kalyanamitta, relationship with those who are practicing with sangha, is essential. It's the whole of the holy life. So, what does that mean? The whole of the holy life. And I think that's a kind of koan we can we can take as something to contemplate. We don't necessarily need to find the answer. You know, the, the kind of I don't think there's a right answer, but just reflecting on that has been valuable for me. And it often comes back to my relationship, yes, with others, but and my relationship with myself. In the in in the end, in the end, they're not different, are they? Well, if we really look at, you know, the different beings that I experience as myself, the good me, the bad me, the noble me, the naughty me. The sleepy me, the, you know, all of the different ones in here. You know, I can be more or less aware of them, and actually, probably the less aware of them I am, then the more I'm seeing those beings of me in in other people. The more I'm projecting them out, and that's something I'm sure many of us have, have noticed in our lives that we don't really see other people totally. we we, we see ourselves in other people. And in the monastic life, one of the ways that, uh, I mean, one of the things I appreciate about the tools of it is that it sort of strips everything down so much that you, it's easier to see. It's a, it's a mirror to what you're doing. A little bit more, perhaps, than when I can, you know, uh, than when uh, you're, you have a lot more choice. So in the monastic life, you know how you're supposed to be. There's lots of shoulds. If you want to get into judgment, it's very easy. By becoming a monk or a nun, and then you just let it rip, and there's all kinds of the the books will say, "Yep, you're right." Mm-hmm. Go ahead, judge, and the teachers will give you these inspiring talks, and say, "Right, mm-hmm. Yep, that's how I should be." Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, and all your sort of friends in the holy life, yeah, good kong, you really did it well that time. Yep, right, that's how I should be. Mm-hmm. And so you've got this this sort of pressure constantly going. That if you're not aware of it. It can be a disaster. And, uh, and all kinds of things result. And it's not just the monastic life. It's, it's all of us uh, can, can, can feel this um, pressure. And we're doing it to ourselves. I mean, yes, other people contribute. But really, we're doing it to ourselves. Because we find that when if we get a taste of stopping this, of really feeling true self-acceptance, then... When somebody else says, hey, you shouldn't do that, you know, hey, you, what, how did you, did you spill, are you, did you spill that on your rope? You know, it doesn't, somehow it doesn't go in. It doesn't, it, it just, oh yeah, oh, oh yeah. It just doesn't go in in the same way where you think, oh, oh, right, oh, how could I have done that? Because I accept myself now. And so that metta, loving kindness practice, it has traditional. Expressions that probably many of us in this room have practiced ways of you start with yourself and then you start then you go to loved ones and you expand the circle outwards and outwards and f- even formula for uh, you know using words to try to turn the mind to- towards these feelings of acceptance and yet it 's something which is. You know it doesn't it doesn 't exist in formulas, does it it 's like all the rest of these things. These formulas are just ways to hopefully they 're there you know in a particular form so a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds can you know can use them and and, and eventually for themselves for ourselves, we can find uh, what it really means and I for me that 's been important is to just remember that you know, I'm responsible for, the, for 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 this in the sense of you know I've got to find my way. I've got to find what does this really mean, and and keeping that sense of investigating, and not just trusting you know my interpretation of the books or what I think some teacher is saying, but really finding well what is the result? What does this work? What's good for me? And then if I'm not in a relationship with others who are practicing and maybe have a bit more experience than me, because traditionally Kalyanamita has meant not just spiritual friends in terms of peers, but Uh, particularly spiritual friends in terms of those who've gone before, those who've practiced a little bit more, even mentors, then they can reflect. They can reflect back. And maybe it'll be verbal, maybe I'll have a good enough relationship so they can talk to me about something they see me doing that I don't see. But more often it's just living with other people who aren't reacting in the way I'm reacting. Suddenly I see my own reaction. It's like a mirror. And that can be the experience many of us perhaps have coming to a place where people practice, coming to a monastery, or here I suppose coming to a retreat center. Although maybe it's a little bit different because everybody's—we're always silent. It's completely silent throughout the entire retreat. And a lot of this uh, learning has uh, you know, happens when we're when we're more engaged, when we're when we're speaking, and when we're 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 doing things and living together. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, you have practice environments which are community environments, not just retreat centers. So we were having that conversation earlier with the uh, director about the difference between, you know, like uh, in the monasteries, it's just sort of you got everyday life going on too. It's not actually a retreat center. In fact, if you're going to a monastery hoping that it's going to be like a retreat center, you're setting yourself up for lots of suffering. Because it's not going to be like that. We actually, at Amaravati where I'm currently living, have a retreat center which is sort of there in the monastery but functions independently. So people can come like, like this for ten days or one week. and Yet it's, it's its own thing. It has its own managers and its own kitchen and everything's running separately. And the monastery life itself is a big hodgepodge of life. It's just life with a capital L and, and each letter is a different color. It's like you know, there's kids running around and then there's people coming in off the street and there's people who are dedicated meditators who are looking for a place to meditate and there are just uh, all kinds of things going on. The school groups coming because uh, in England the uh, religious education department likes to, they're very tolerant of, of different traditions. So you've got all kinds of things happening in the monastery and that's one of the wonderful things about it. And There's a lot of work to do. Um, Bob, the executive director, had been talking to Ajahn Sachito and, and I about the project they have here at IMS. They're going to build an extension. It looks beautiful. Um, so, in the future, no one will have to share a room. And uh, also, it will have other uh, be- major benefits. And one of the questions he asked Ajahn Sachito was, Well, do you have any experience with uh, like construction projects? I always <laughs> uh, just had to laugh because it's been like 25 years of construction projects. And all, you know, from being the one who hammers in the nails to being the one who tries to administrate things. So monasteries really are ordinary life, yet the context is such that everybody there is there for the sake of practice. So in that sense, it's a wonderful thing, because it doesn't really matter if you do it wrong. You're not going to get sacked. You know, or, and replaced. If you don't know how to hammer the nail in the right place, they'll just gently move you to a different task. <laughs> 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 I think that's actually what happened to Ajin Sumido in the early years at Chitters, from what I hear. Ajin Chito knows much more than I do because I wasn't around. But he apparently, you know, he didn't have much coordination with with things. So you know, they they kind of oh, it was Ajin Nando, the first Ajahn Nando who told me this. You know, he he was a real builder type, and. Uh, Someone in the back also remember these, remember these times, Joseph there. And uh, Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedha would just, he didn't seem to be able to fit in with the sort of team of people doing things and doing, so they, they finally just sort of eased him out. I think actually, with all due respect, Ajahn Suchita may have been another of the people. They sort of just eased out. <laughs> Particular tasks, and found a little corner, and I think for for Rajan for it may have been upholstering furniture, you know, something you can do on your own. And Ajahn Sichita no doubt contributed in many um, very well appreciated ways. But none of us got sacked, you know, none of us, nobody really cared because none of us is there. And then if the monastery, you know, if there's a wall's a bit crooked or something like that, it's okay, you know, it's just for keeping out the weather and being able to have a. roof over your head for the night, which is our standard. So the monastery, you know, you've got the normal stuff of everyday life. I mean, we do a lot of work and it's juxtaposed with times of retreat and it's juxtaposed with silent times when you're on your own and silent times when you're together like we are now in silent and times when you're not silent. You're you're very much having to engage whether you want to or not. With people, you wouldn't necessarily choose to be living with or uh, associating with in such close ways, except that somehow the Dhamma speaks to so many different kinds of people. It brings all kinds of people who would never otherwise be coming together, because they have very different characters, very different interests, very different backgrounds. But the Dhamma is something which speaks to each one of us. that's the point in the heart, isn't it, the Buddha wanted to point to, and although it sounds negative, it's in a way it's beautiful because it brings us together and it's this word dukkha or suffering. You know, where we suffer is actually what brings us together. We can look at it in a very negative way. Oh yes, Theravada, Hinayana Buddhism always talking about suffering, 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 gotta get out, gotta get out, gotta get out. But it's not really you know, it's it's more well both a sense of being realistic, you know, coming out of denial. You know, let's, let's wake up together and really feel what, what there what there is and, and what is common. You know, between us, it's suffering. There's this phrase in the Thailand when they give Dhamma talks, where they start out by saying, "Well, we're all brothers and sisters in suffering." <laughs> which in Thailand maybe has this really kind of lovely effect and everyone gets all joyful. Here it's a bit of a downer. <laughs> but when we really come to that point of, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean for me and for you? And, we're all, and we all want to address this together you know, to, in some way or another in relationship to each other. It's a beautiful thing. And then, of course, the good news of Buddhism is that it's not that life is suffering and that's it. It's that okay, there is suffering and that needs to be recognized. Yep, there is suffering. And the good news is it's something I'm doing to myself. I'm making myself suffer. Isn't that interesting? So for one, you know, in one way or another each of us sort of get interested in this dynamic in this practice, and then we have to find our own ways to approach it. What's going to be useful in my life as I live it? And you know, it's not the case that, you it's not a hundred percent you have to just take it or leave it, the full monthy or nothing. It's basically you know, like medicine. You know, you, you, you take a little bit, you get a little bit better. You take a little bit more, you get a little bit more better. And so, it's for us to decide, and for us to find out, to uh, just discover, you know, for me, in my situation, in this life, what's, what, what's needed. You know, Ajahn Chah famously used to say that, you know, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little bit of peace. And If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely you will have complete peace so that's up to us and like you know the image of the puppy that I made nandi gave us the other day of just bringing the puppy gently and showing where the food is we can just start for ourselves to sort of taste what is that what is that freedom what, uh, freedom from holding freedom from what I'm doing to myself. And that'll have its own expression, we're, we're all different, and that yet the patterns are, are common, and so the patterns that we have in the Buddhist teaching can speak to each one of us, however different we are. The, the, what catches us are these basic, raw outflows, or obstacles, or kilesas is the pa- Pali word of, of greed, hatred, Delusion, those are English words. So really it's lobha, dosa, moha, or the that just that energy of I want, I want, I want. It's raw pulling in, or I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, pushing out, destroy, get rid of. Or not seeing, lost, asleep. And these are common to all of us. So I often think that uh, you know when we look at the problems in the world and how 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 many needs there are in so many different ways in so many places, it's endless. How can we you know, how can we help? How can we live a life of integrity? When here I sit comfortably, you know, in my nice middle class life. I mean, okay, I'm a monk, but it's pretty comfortable right now in the monasteries in England. It's getting more and more middle class, it seems to be. But, uh, you know, how can I sit here and with integrity and knowing that children are starving every day in Africa, knowing that people are getting blown up here or, or there, and knowing that there's corruption going on you know, right down the street in some way. How can I help? And there's no answer you know, to that that's going to be right for everybody. But I often think that, you know, okay, there are some people for whom you know, the answer to that will be to go and, 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 and directly confront what needs to be confronted in some way. Maybe to go and, and uh, maybe to make a contribution to uh, people who are in a position, which I'm not in, to uh, you know an organization which is helping these people. Maybe it's to give up things and join that organization and help the people. But also, and I think, I feel that what we're doing here is almost the kind of the most radical kind of social action, in the sense that we're treating the roots of the problem. We're learning for ourselves how to get to the root of all of the manifest pain and problems in the world. They all come from moha, dosa, lobha, greed, hatred, delusion, this blind attachment and entrainment to I want, I want, I want, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want, or just not seeing. And how to get out of that? Well, we can't help other people out of that unless we ourselves n- know what it means. And then, since we're in relationship to each other, we're not, when we practice for ourselves, we're not really just practicing for ourselves, are we? We affect those people who are in relationship to us. Whether we want to or not, whether we think we are doing so or not, we are. And perhaps, you know, on some other you know, some subtle ways we're connected too. So we may uh, find ourselves also needing to engage in in, uh, external direct social action. It's not to exclude that at all as a possibility, but it's also not to diminish the value of the work that we're doing when we come and practice what the Buddha taught in the ways that we can find you know, for ourselves to do so in a place like this, or in our own lives, um, whatever your situation might be, we're helping. We're helping ourselves and we're helping the world in ways I, I personally feel uh, really actually help, most of all, really get to the root. Um, and so what, to, what is needed? And that's not something we can always you know, answer. And it's almost always not something our brain can answer with a, a pithy articulation. It's something that has to come from the heart. And more and more as we get a taste for what it means to, to let go of that which we're holding on to, and a taste of what it means to let go of our judgments. Judgments of ourselves, judgments of others. <laughs> Then naturally, we won't have to whip ourselves into the practice, or you know, kind of uh, f- follow the the shoulds, the, the tyrant who says, "Do it, do it. You should. You know, you should. You've committed yourself. You believe in this. Da-da-da-da. Whatever it says." The way you know is because we'll, we'll, it's like the puppy who's ah, hmm, hmm. That's delicious. You just kind of get a feeling for ah. I don't have to be doing this to myself. Whew. and it doesn't even doesn't even depend on him not doing it to me. You know, I, I don't have to be doing this to myself. And then staying in relationship with others who are also practicing, you know, it it gets modelled and, and mirrored back. And we make mistakes. And that's part, that's the big, big part of it. It's, I wouldn't even be surprised if there was an alternative version where the Buddha, where Ananda said, oh, this practice is so hard, Lord. It's just about making mistakes and then kind of seeing your mistakes and having to correct and making more mistakes. And the Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. Don't say that, Ananda. It's not half the practice. It's the whole practice. <laughs> it's making mistakes and making mistakes and then, you know, just finding and correcting and finding and correcting. We're all doing this. And so for, for me, one of the uh, important aspects of bringing mindfulness into what we call the four foundations of mindfulness, the theme for this retreat, the body, the, the, the feelings in terms of agreeable, disagreeable, neutral, the mind, mind states, the contracted mind, the expanded mind, our moods, mental states, and then all of the, what we can reflect on in the teachings of Dhammas, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the important aspect to bring to it is this sense of allowing and caring and just getting in touch with you know that, that in me which can witness, witness my own life as I live it, witness my own self and, and, and hold it in a way which is not it's not holding, it's, it's embracing, allowing holding in a way which in itself already cares. I don't have to generate caring. I don't have to become a caring person. Even if I feel totally uncaring, right? Okay, that's the feeling now. And that which can know and be with it in a heartful and conscious way is already caring, whether I remember that or not, whether I know it or not. So it's been very important to uh, learn to remember that learn what that means in my heart, and then remind myself again and again. And that can be a practice in itself. This sense of witnessing myself as I go through my day living my life, making mistakes. It's all right. Mistakes is the whole of the holy life. The Buddha said so in my head. Right? But it's, it's witness, but I can also witness. and carry this sense of witnessing in a heartful way, not some sort of heady, abstract way. A full feeling awareness which is not dependent on anything, and has this sense of caring. And just then it becomes, again, very difficult, yes, but not complicated. It's simple, not easy, not easy at all, but simple, not complicated. In a sense that, okay, well, how do I do? What do I do? The five, this is the six, that's what should I? Oh, there was so much teaching. Which one should I? Now what was I supposed to do? But just coming back to this, right, be here with this, just know, come back to the knowing of this. Very simple, very simple. And then a matter of just remembering as much as I can, even if it's one moment, like the Buddha said, about one drop in the bucket, one drop. And at first it's, uh, the drops are separated from each other in time more. It's just one moment of mindfulness, and then next week I remember again, something like that. And more and more as we do this, that in us, you know, the puppy remembers where the food is, that the, the that in us that is looking starts to get a sense for it. You just start to get more and more familiar with this presence that is always already there. And that's of course just a way of speaking, just to say always already there. Actually if you, you can't find anything. And, and then Theravada scholars would be very quick to point out there's nothing there, there's no, there's no it. And that's all right, Too. that's correct, yes. But these are ways of speaking, ways of pointing to the heart where there's, there's always this sense you can tune into of being aware of what's happening. And it's that simple. No, it's not easy because of the habits, but it is that simple as a practice, for me, of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, as, as, we, as we go. It doesn't, it can, we can make it complicated and it actually can be useful to make it more complicated too. So it's not saying this is the only way to practice and anything more involved is wrong. Not at all. But it can be if we find ourselves confused or if we want to know, how, how do I bring this practice into my so-called daily life, in quotes. There was always this dichotomy years ago coming to IMS where, you know, how do I integrate the practice with daily life? It's like, well, the practice. I mean, life, life is the practice. Well, if we want to know how to do it, this is one way. It is simple. We need to find things that are simple enough to remember and then get a sense for it. And it is powerful, really powerful. Like the water, you know, in a vessel in which you, you put the contracted self in the middle, like Ajahn, whatever the image was, Ajahn Chito gave, I really liked it the other day. And then it just you don't have to do anything. It just in, it, it's in that, the water of awareness and it'll just start to break up and you know, loosen up and expand itself. So it's, our only task is the water of awareness there. Keeping ourselves you know, able to do that does mean, yes, we have to be careful not to do things which are harmful to ourselves or others. All these other teachings, yes, they are involved. We have to live a life of moral integrity because we find that if we don't, we won't be able to be as aware. It's just that the results of of, uh, unskillful action are that the mind is disturbed. Even whether or not we want to admit that or or recognize it, that's what happens. And so, we have a chance, all of us, and we're, in a sense, in relationship with each other, in a sense, we're in relationship with all those before us who've practiced as well, and perhaps all those who come after. Because the the practice is not about individual people in, ver- in one very real sense. Well, of course, in another very real sense, it really very much is about, you know, me, the uniqueness, the individual who is me. That has to be honored in some way on the level in which I exist. And yet, the practice itself, where it leads, is to see through that, isn't it? And that which comes through, you know, each of us have just as much access to it as anyone else. That's not doesn't belong to me or you, or you know those of us living now or in the past. There's it's a, there's a timeless like the chanting we do, a It's timeless. There's a quality to the dhamma which is it's such a blessing because it's always it's always already available. That's perhaps enough for this evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Seed